Because I walked away with this idea. I walked away with the notion that if you clearly and compellingly teach and preach God's word, everyone will like you, everything will go smoothly, and the church will continue. Uh, I have a hard time getting that sentence out of my mouth. I'm going to free myself this morning for getting it out to 
prove all of that to me. That's why I don't So uh, the next a couple of Sundays, she's in the nursery, and she's more people side, she's on people. Uh, a couple of months later, we're in Easter season, and I decided for three weeks to preach a sermon series called What It Is That Jesus Has Achieved at the Cross. And it was a brief examination of Romans chapter 8, which uh, all of you know starts out. But there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We walked through that passage, and uh, it was the week after Easter that she wrote an absolutely scathing note and said, I'll never be back. And my first thought was, <laughs> all right. Uh, and then uh, she had a little reason why it was uh, because you uh, are so hateful toward the gospel. And, well, what is it that you mean? And she laid out the points, which is that uh, her daughter had been visiting her daughter and was not a follower of Jesus Christ, and I did not on that Easter morning give an altar call. Well, I, I had encouraged people to follow Jesus Christ and said, if you want to talk to them, we'd love to talk to you, but I did not actually invite them forward to walk out to the front because, as you know, if you don't walk down to the front, it doesn't count. We'll come back to that in about half an hour. So, uh, absolutely scathing, she left and said terrible things. And um, we were at the Walk for Life the following September and ran into her. And, like, I'm just finding you a little salute and heading the opposite direction. And she came up, oh, it's so nice to see you. I missed you. How are things? And I wanted to say, they're so much better now that you're gone. It would have been 19 to 1 instead of 19 to 1. And here we go. It was a spectacular lesson to learn in the first year of ministry. That there are some people, and I don't mean to surprise you with this, there are some people who are ministerial villains. And there are different varieties, we'll talk about that here in a moment, but we've come to near the very end of Paul's last letter. Paul is imprisoned in Rome. It is unlikely. He acknowledges at this point that he's ever getting out of prison in Rome, that in fact it is probably the Romans who have had enough of his gospel ministry and are absolutely done with it and are going to do the only thing which will actually shut Paul up and that's the his life. And so having given his final commendation to Timothy here, he says in verse uh, 6 of 2 Timothy chapter 4, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. And that's not an accident. He uses a, another militaristic term. He used it in chapter 2. He used it in chapter 3. If you did not know, maybe an exceptional literature now, that if you will engage people, the hope that comes exclusively from Jesus Christ, that you are a sinner, that he is a savior, and you are entirely dependent on him. And it is only by... It is only by... Christ, that you're unaware entirely in your experience of the gospel that might 
Paul is fully aware. I have fought the good fight, he says right here. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And here already, Paul's going to draw battle lines. Who's on his side? Those who have loved the appearing of Jesus Christ and have served him in faith and in obedience in their ministerial careers. Who's on the other side? Well, here we get, from that final combination, here we get the, uh, the hellos and the goodbyes. And, and just as much as 2 Timothy is a letter about Timothy, it's also a letter about Paul. We learn a lot about how, how he operates, who he is, what he values. He says in verse 9, do your best, he writes Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone on to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Go get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and all the books and all the parchments. Now, if we just stop there, you start to get a sense of the narrative of what's happening here in Paul's life, that while he is ministering in Rome, he is arrested and he's taken into imprisonment there. Winter is coming soon. There are some people that he reflects on more fondly than others. Some he is confused with. Some he is heartbroken over. Obviously, the first thing he mentions is Demas. He doesn't appear to be angry, but he does appear to be sorry. Demas, in love with this present world, uh, not thinking about the world that is to come, not thinking about what will happen when Jesus Christ returns. Not longing for his appearing, but longing for the here and now. That's Demas. Demas has set himself in opposition to the gospel ministry of Paul. Demas is fighting on the other side. He is an adversary of the agenda that Paul has, which is explicitly and exclusively gospel-based. And then he has his friends here, and these are people who have deserted him, but people that he has dispatched as an organizer of missions in Asia Minor and in Europe and beyond. Crescens, Titus, Luke, bring Mark. We'll talk about Mark an awful lot next week. This week we're talking about how Paul responds to the villains. Next week we'll talk about how Paul responds to the heroes. Tychicus, we have said, and we will come bring the cloak and the books and all the rest. And I do love what Paul mentions here. All the things I need to buy in prison for any books. Um, I can't remember, maybe it's Erasmus, the one who said, uh, when I get a little money, I buy books, and if there's any left over, I buy food and clothes. <laughs> and then we find the greatest one listed here in the book. Now, he's not the only one. Demas is a problem. Mark has been historically a problem. Uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus, back in chapter 2, verse 17, have been problems. There are more problems listed, these vague types of people listed in chapter 3, right? And now we come to uh, verse 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 4, being the greatest villain in the later years of Paul's ministry. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. He did me great harm. We're not told explicitly what that is. Uh, we get a briefly listed clue here that maybe it is Alexander, his love, who ratted him out to the 
St. Alexander who was excommunicated by Paul in first year. This is maybe Paul's Judas, you understand. It says here, Alexander the congressman, if you weren't sure which Alexander we're talking about, the one who works metal, did me great harm. And then note here the response, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he is strongly opposed to our message. And at my first defense, no one would come to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, Paul says, mercifully. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And you're sure again, who's read the prophecy of Daniel. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into this heavenly kingdom to be with him the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's interesting what Paul says here. Training young Timothy. This is the last few days of Timothy's training in the seminary of Paul. And he's not going to allow Timothy to emerge with the same naivete that I emerged from 11 years ago. You need to know that in this battle, there are those who are for you and for the gospel, those who are against you and against the gospel. Those who do not bear the agenda of Jesus Christ, but bear their own agenda. Now, what's absolutely fascinating is if we're thinking about all of the villains that have been listed here and all the people who stand in contradiction to the gospel, it's the one that he doesn't mention that gets him the most attention here because where is Paul? Well, in a Roman prison, held there under Roman law, guarded by Roman soldiers, under Roman authority, about to be judged by a Roman court and to be executed by a Roman executioner. But you notice he never talks about Rome hardly at all in this letter. It's as if he bears the expectations that Romans will do Roman things. But it's those who bear an affiliation with Jesus Christ who have gummed up the works of the gospel that he has the And so you see Paul's priorities emerging here. His first cry isn't, I have been unjustly imprisoned. And so he's not a victim who is being victimized, whose greatest enemy, the victimizer, Rome. Right? That's not Paul's concern here. His greatest problem is, I have been working for the gospel, and there are people who have been standing in the way of that agenda. Fascinating to see how Paul's priorities emerge from who he perceives as his greatest adversaries. So what I'd like to do, over the next couple of minutes, not a long time, uh, but just the next few, is to share with you five thoughts on how to deal with gospel adversaries. Uh, most of these emerge straight out of 2 Timothy. Some are drawn from a little further out in the Pauline world. Some are just practical matters. Um, if you have a sheet of paper, you may want to write these down. If you know it's worth submitting somewhere in your uh, ministry memory files here, because these will to serve Five ways for dealing with gospel villains. Number one, don't be surprised by adversity. Don't be surprised by adversity. Ministry villains exist. There's a reason why Paul keeps returning to 
to the language of battle. There's a reason why in Ephesians chapter 6 he tells us to put on the full armor of Christ. There's a reason why he tells us to stand guard. There's a reason why he tells us to equip ourselves with the tools necessary to fight against the ultimate adversary, that is the devil, and all of those who stand for his agenda here on the earth. This is not easy. This is not a game we're playing. There are eternal consequences to the choices that we make, and there are people who would have eternal consequences that stand in contradiction to the agenda of Jesus Christ. Some are out in the community. Some are in their families. Some are in the church. Some have been in this church. How would we respond? Don't be surprised. If you take a stand for Jesus Christ, that there are those who will stand in opposition to you. Do you understand this? Now some people just may not like you. Maybe it is that they don't find the gospel Maybe they just find you.
So I decided I wanted to go try out some other churches. We went to a few other churches. And uh, at Christmas break, I came home and um, uh, went to the first meeting of our college class, which I had never been to before, uh, of the spring semester. And the guy got up, and it was uh, four people in the class plus me, so five of us total. It was uh, a guy and his girlfriend, that guy's best friend, and his girlfriend, and then me. And for the last two years, he'd only been the four of them in that class, right? And I wondered, I guess this is a church of seven or eight hundred people. Why are there only four people in college class when uh, one of the biggest Christian colleges uh, in the area is, you know, 15 minutes down the road? You would think this would be a likely place to improve a lot of And none of the people that I had graduated with from high school in a rather large youth ministry had transitioned into the college class. This is weird. And the first week, I learned why. Because the guy who was teaching class was a pretty nice guy. He was a pretty nice girl. Uh, but his best friend was a huge jerk. Right? And uh, his girlfriend, uh, I couldn't understand why she would be in the first place, right? Not a nice guy. If you've ever seen MASH, right? The whole sitcom. Do you remember Frank Burns? Frank was just, this was Frank Burns. That's this guy. And so uh, for the first uh, week we were there, uh, the teacher asked a question, I answered the question, and uh, here is Frank up inside, he goes, wrong, right? And here's an overzealous, overeducated, underexperienced Bible major over here, and I'm a philosophy major, I don't know. And every time I said something, he's like, wrong, <coughs> actually, uh, you know, what it, what it really says, actually, and I got tired of hearing the word actually, he's been a man, he's just actually right? Uh, and so uh, I went to our associate pastor to charge with youth ministry. I just said, hey, I want you to know, this guy stinks. You've got to find somebody else. Uh, the class is a mess. Uh, it needs to be rebooted. What are you going to do about it? He said, I'm so grateful you came. You're going to meet me here on Thursday. You're going to teach next Sunday. I want to get you ready. And uh, I went, huh, what? <laughs> uh, which is a great lesson to learn there, too, that if you complain about anything, there's at least a chance that we're going to try to put you to work next time. So... Who's um, <laughs> that? Did I get an amen the sound? <laughs> Corey complains about a lot. That's why he's done all this uh, stuff back here. So uh, we get ready, and I go in. I teach the first week. Uh, I felt really confident sitting in the associate pastor's office putting this together. And then I got up there and I'm, 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 couldn't get anything out that was bad. And uh, Frank Burns over here, uh, Major Burns, just let me hear it the entire time. Well, then I decided I'm going to call all the people that I graduated from high school with in the last couple of years in our youth ministry and invite them to come to the college class. And, and more and more of them kept coming over the next few weeks. And so we had about 15 or 20 people now coming somewhat regularly. And, and every week, uh, Major Burns just flashing out. I mean, just letting them have actually, actually, actually. And he was just brutal about it. It was so annoying. Now, he wasn't wrong. He was just so zealous to get it right that he was annoying to everybody who didn't have it all as figured out as he did yet. So I uh, pulled aside after class one week and I said, look, uh, Jesus loves me. But we all think you're a jerk. And so if you can't shut up, you've got to leave. And he left. Now, uh, we went to college a couple years after that, and uh, he was a year ahead of me. So he graduated after one the year. And then he took apparently a gap year and started seminary at the same time that I did been another four years And he said, you know, uh, walking uh, up to me at one point uh, there in Dallas area after a couple of years, I uh, said, you know what we used to call you in seminary? All right, back in college, you know what we used to, me and my friends, we used to call you Newman from Seinfeld. 
Would not repent of their 
they couldn't get over it or I couldn't get over it or something happened, I don't know. We just couldn't find a way to make it work. And before we could continue to sit down and make it all happen, they were over. Are they really villains? Do they feel like that? But these are overwhelmingly people who love the gospel, who teach the Bible, who love Jesus Christ, as he preserves the world. Thank you. 
position that we held in our bylaws, Constitution, and Confession today. We went to a diner and sat down with breakfast and paraded in for half an hour. And said, I'm sorry to all of our own and all of our people stand on this particular issue in the same way. And they said, Don't you have any idea how much money you have and how much money you'll lose if you don't take our side on this particular Something's not quite right. The ministry gospel gears are not clicking 
them together. And one of the things you need to do before you start formulating a strategy about how to hit that sucker is to stand in front of God's word and go, is it me? Is it my sin? Is it my ignorance? Is it my uncollegiality? Is there something in the way that I'm approaching this that needs to be fixed before the grace of Jesus Christ? Before I, Is there a plank that must be removed from my eye before I withdraw the speck from yours? The word of God will allow you to do that. It's humbling. It is really unpleasant. It really is. But one of the surefire ways to kill a church, to just decimate the congregation, is to foster the belief that you are always right. They are always right. Only solution moving forward is just always. Let me guarantee you this. You are regularly wrong. They are regularly wrong. I am regularly wrong. We must cling to the book and demonstrate the kind of grace that Jesus demonstrates to us. We are not all right, but Jesus
villains exist. They did involve Stanley Cunell, too. Not in some theoretical sense, but practically here, even in Rocky. They're not all the same variety, and so we don't approach them all in the same way. And sometimes when we look at the mirror, we find that we have been perfect. And in humility, we cry out, Lord, be gracious to us. Let us be transformed and renewal in our hearts and minds, as is accomplished exclusively through prayer and the word, ministry of the Holy Spirit, our adoration of Jesus Christ. And then we look around and go, who's with Thank you.